I wouldn't want to start my message with any other words other than these two. Thank you. I really love this place and feel like it has given me so much. This church is overwhelmingly generous with the way they provide support and programs for young people, kids, students. It was such a meaningful part of my upbringing and growing up. It has given me um, a faith that now uh, I have um, passion to share with others. And I also believe this church has a vision to really serve the larger church. And that's something that I've taken from Spring Branch and tried to bring to the church where I serve at the Williamsburg Community Chapel. We came down for the Leadership Summit this, uh, this year, this past August. We had 100 people from our church, and this place just treated them like VIP guests. And so I have much to give thanks to Spring Branch for. When my dad called me and asked me about speaking on the 14th, I was a little nervous because, as he said, we have five Christmas concerts, and I speak at each one of them. I'm four in. I've got one more this afternoon. But when Spring Branch calls, I have such a debt of gratitude to this place. I wanted to come. Plus, in addition to offering all the Christmas presents uh, to the grandchildren, he also offered to speak on the 28th at the Williamsburg Community Chapel. So we'll be stealing him on December 28th. Well, this morning, if we all could just walk away with one thing, I'd like it to be this. When you have the choice between clarity and obscurity, choose clarity every time. This summer, I had to make the choice between clarity and obscurity. You see, I lost my wallet, my phone, and my keys. You think it's bad to lose your wallet. It's bad to lose your phone. It's bad to lose your keys. What must it feel like to lose your wallet, phone, and keys all at the same time? It feels really bad. It feels really bad. You go, how in the world could you possibly lose a wallet, phone, and keys all at the same time? I have a confession to make. There's something that really bothers me, and it's just stuff in my pockets. And so after I have endured a week of the pain of puffy pockets all week long, I take respite from my puffy pockets on the weekend. I've invented something. I call it my weekend wallet. It combines your wallet, your phone, your keys, all into one crazy apparatus that all attaches together, complete with a little floaty keychain. So if you fall into the James River in Williamsburg, the Atlantic Ocean here in Virginia Beach, you don't lose your wallet, phone, and keys all at the same time. So I was riding my bike this summer when we were on vacation from the north end down to the south, and I stopped at the hardware store on 17th Street. I bought some things, and then I continued on down a little bit past the Rudy Inlet Bridge where Nina's parents, the Stricklands, live. And when I got there, I realized my weekend wallet was gone. So I immediately got back on my bike. I retraced my steps all the way back to the hardware store. Didn't see it anywhere on the path. Went into the hardware store, said, hey, did I leave it here? They said, no. I said, can I use your phone to try to call my phone? So I'm calling my phone, and immediately I realized I have my phone on do not disturb because I'm on vacation. Oh, so I ride my bike all the way back to the Strickland's house. I grab Nina's phone because I have it programmed that it will ring when Nina's phone calls, even when it's on Do Not Disturb. And as it rings once, rings twice, I think it's gone. My wallet, my phone, my keys, it's all gone. And then finally, a man named Herman picks up the phone. I said, Herman, 
do you have my wallet, phone, and keys? He said, I have something. I don't know what this thing is. But yes, I have this thing here. He said, it's my weekend wallet, Herman. I, I need my weekend wallet back. Where are you, Herman? He says, well, I've already made it all the way to my home back in Chesapeake. I said, what's your address, Herman? He says, yeah, come pick it up right now. No problem. He gives me his address, and I'm going to walk out the door. And Nina stops me. She says, you can't go to Herman's house. I said, why not? She said, what if he stabs you? I said, why would he stab me? He answered the phone. He's not stealing my wallet. Why would he, why would he do that? He's a good guy. He didn't steal anything. He goes, he answered the phone because he didn't want to steal your wallet. He wanted to stab you. So do not go to Herman. So I go, I call Herman up. I said, look, Herman, you know, what were you doing in Virginia Beach? He goes, I work in Virginia Beach. I said, can I pick it up from you tomorrow at work? He said, no problem, I get to work at 8 a.m. So I said, Herman, where do you work? So now we have a little bit of a translation problem. Herman is a Latino gentleman, and I'm trying to figure out where the specifics of his job is, and all I can get out of him is that he works somewhere near the Rudy Inlet Bridge. So I had the clarity of an address in my hand, a specific location with a pin, you know, that fell right on Nina's iPhone, right here. It's all clear. I have clarity in my hands. And now I'm getting the obscurity of somewhere near the Rudy Inlet Bridge. So I want to bring clarity and obscurity together. So I hand the phone to my father-in-law, Felix, who is from Puerto Rico. I said, Felix, can you get some clarity out of this guy? So Felix gets on the phone, ba 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 bam, 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 back and forth, back and forth. And they say, you know, a million Spanish words, and Felix hangs up the phone. I said, Felix, where does he work? And Felix looks at me, and I, I kid you not, Felix says, he works somewhere near the Rudy Inlet Bridge. <laughs> so the next day... The next day, I set out to find wherever somewhere near the Rudy Inlet Bridge is, and I'm talking to all different construction crews. I'm talking in different hotel lobbies. It was pinpointed that he was either a construction worker or he worked at a hotel. I'm wondering in that, does anyone own a Herman? Anyone seen Herman? And finally, I find a construction crew that says, there's one last construction crew that you haven't seen. It's on the other side of this building. I go over to the other side of the building. I find the foreman, and I said, hey, does a guy named Herman work here? He goes, oh, yeah. He does work here. I said, great, where is he? He goes, Herman didn't come to work today. I go, I bet he didn't come to work today. I bet I know exactly what Herman is doing. I bet he's having a great time not at work today. He said, well, his kids got sick, and then I didn't know, you know, if I should repent for thinking that Herman was out spending my, my money, and now his kids are sick. And he goes, but he said he's going to come in at noon, come back at noon. Again, I had the clarity of an address. Now I'm settling for the obscurity of come back at noon, and maybe, just maybe, Herman will be here. So I come back at noon. I asked the foreman, did Herman show up? He said, yeah, he's right up there on the scaffolding. Herman rappels down, and this is Herman right there. I, there he is. Great guy. I tried to give Herman $40 out of the weekend wallet. He wouldn't take it. What a wonderful man. And I just remember thinking, next time I have the choice between clarity and obscurity, I need to choose clarity. I could have saved myself a lot of headache. I could have saved myself a lot of hassle. I believe there are a lot of people that are choosing obscurity rather than clarity when it comes to Christmas. You see, it's the most wonderful time of the year. We host parties. We bake cookies. Our TVs, they turn black and white. 
Something called claymation becomes an acceptable form of entertainment. We send each other letters. We bring white elephants to Christmas. We, excuse me, we bring white elephants to the office. We go on pilgrimages to sacred sites that honor some of our nation's most distinguished patriarchs. Douglas MacArthur Center, Patrick Henry's Mall, and of course, William Tyson's Corner. We go to these places. There we make irrational financial decisions based on foolish notions like, well, maybe the tax return will cover it this year. We try to cram so much holiday fun into our souls. We think, surely this time it will last. Surely this time the memories won't fade. Surely this time the lights won't go out. But inevitably, every year, the sound of jingle bells eventually fades to the noise of pine needles being sucked into a vacuum cleaner. And we all think to ourselves, was that it? What do I do now? The lights on the tree dim, and obscurity sets in. I believe the reason for this feeling that we all face at the end of this season is that we look at Christmas as a celebration rather than a calling. You see, a celebration is a one-time event. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of lights and mirrors and smoke and fog. But when you leave it as a one-time event, your brain is foggy. Again, you're thinking, was that it? Isn't there something more? And so I believe we should move from looking at Christmas as a celebration to looking at Christmas as a calling, an ongoing perpetual process that Jesus beckons us to. It's a calling, but a calling to what? Let's make sure we have clarity on this issue. We find clarity on the calling of Christmas in Mark chapter 10. And I'd like to read verses 46 through 52. And if we pay close attention, we will hear the calling of Christmas in these verses. It's a story called the story of blind Bartimaeus receiving his sight. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is son, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. See, there are a few elements of this story that I think just jump off of the page. There's the shouting. There's the shouting. This man in the midst of Jesus leaving the city just interrupts the process. Jesus is actually going to a fairly important place. Jericho is the last stop before Jesus goes to Jerusalem where he will undergo trial and ultimately go to the cross and fulfill the very mission for which he came. And this man shouting, Jesus, son of David, he just interrupts him. 
Then there's the dramatic throwing of the cloak. This blind man throws his cloak to the side and he runs over to Jesus. And Jesus has a question for him. The question is, what do you want me to do for you? And the story ends with the disciple, with, with Bartimaeus following Jesus. It says he moved from sitting alongside of the road to following Jesus along the road. I believe the call of Christmas can be summed up in this one word, followed. The calling of Christmas is to follow, to follow Jesus. How does Bartimaeus get there? Well, we need to expand our, our story here. Because the story of Bartimaeus comes at the end of Mark chapter 10. And really, the entire gospel of Mark has been leading up to this moment. And chapter 10, specifically, is trying to help you see what following Jesus is all about. There's a word that gets used over and over and over again in Mark chapter 10. It's the word disciple or discipleship. And this can be a a word that we don't use a lot in our everyday conversation. And so it can sound a little fancy, it can sound a little archaic, it can sound a little outdated, or maybe even like it doesn't have any meaning for our lives. But a, the word disciple is very important, because when Jesus left the earth, his final words recorded in Matthew chapter 28 were a challenge to those who had followed him to make disciples. It was a radical call, because at that time nobody made disciples. You see, what you made were rabbis. Rabbis had disciples. And eventually they would go through a process and they would become the rabbi. Nobody made disciples. You made rabbis. But Jesus says make disciples. There's a never-ending process of of apprenticeship here. And so to understand the word disciple and discipleship is very important. And so it's, it's actually a pretty simple word. It just means one who follows Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Someone who's following Jesus. And so all throughout Mark 10... We get this word disciple or discipleship because it's a chapter that focuses on following Jesus. And I'll give you the references here. It's in verse 10, verse 13, verse 23, verse 24, verse 26, 29, 32, 35, and 46. It's all through this chapter. And what we read are instructions on following and marriage, instructions on following and how we treat the weak, instructions on following and wealth, instructions on following and power, and ultimately we land on this picture of blind Bartimaeus as the true and pure disciple, the true and pure follower, the one that moves from sitting alongside the road to following along the road, and you get three contrasts of following, and these three contrasts are the instructions for us for how we can move from sitting alongside our roads to following Jesus along his road. These are the three contrasts. Bartimaeus and the disciples, Bartimaeus and the rich young man, Bartimaeus and the sons of Zebedee. Let's take these one at a time. The contrast between Bartimaeus and the disciples. Earlier on in the chapter, we see in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. People are bringing little children to Jesus and the disciples say, it's getting too chaotic 
It's getting too noisy. It's getting too out of control. And so the disciples rebuke these people. They rebuke the little children. They say, no, no, no. We can't have all this noise around here. Let's calm things down. Let's look at the contrast with the story of Bartimaeus. You pick up, I'm going to pick up the story in verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the word pops up again. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. You see the contrast? When the children are coming to Jesus, the disciples rebuke them, be quiet. Bartimaeus gets rebuked, and he says, I won't be quiet. I won't settle down. I have to cry out. Bartimaeus cries out two things. He cries out who Jesus is and who he is. He cries out Jesus' identity and his own identity. He cries out Jesus, son of David. What does this mean? This past summer at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we did a study on the book of Judges. The book of Judges shows chaos and just a complete breakdown of Israelite society and how they were following the Lord. The book of Judges ends with a famous line, and in those days, Israel had no king, and each man saw, each man did as he saw fit. Or in the famous King James translation, in those days, Israel had no king, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the book of Judges ends there, with this idea that Israel has no king and it's not going well. The Bible moves from Judges to the book of the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings where and then 1st and 2nd Chronicles all where we get this story of how Israel needed a king and how they received a king. But when they received a king their first king was a man named Saul and it didn't go too well. And so Saul had to be Moved on, and there was another king that was moved in. The king's name was David, and David was the king for Israel. About halfway into his reign, David said, I, I need to build a house for God. I've got a great house, but God has no house. And then a prophet named Nathan comes to David and says, David, God has a message for you. You don't build the houses around here. He builds the houses around here. And it's a play on words because David was trying to build a house as in a a temple, a house for God. And God is saying, David, I'm going to build you a house as in a lineage, as in descendants that will remain on the throne. And God promises forever and ever. And David says, wow, what a great kingly family I will have. But he misunderstood. For David ultimately had his fall with Bathsheba. And the kings that came after him, his son Solomon included, they did not lead Israel to the Lord. Because when God said, I'm going to put a king on your throne, David, it wasn't a human king. David and all the other kings of Israel were a, a mere shadow of the true king, of the real king, of the ultimate king that would once come. His name is King Jesus and so Bartimaeus, when he cries out, Jesus, son of David, he's acknowledging the kingly heritage of Jesus and the identity of Jesus as Israel's one and true and future king. Bartimaeus starts out, who is Jesus? And next, he says, 
who am I? He declares who Jesus is, then he declares who he is. What's Bartimaeus' identity? You say, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, you're the king, and I am one who is in need of mercy. Jesus, you're in charge, and I have no idea how to manage my own life. There is a quote that I've stumbled upon from the new pope, Pope Francis. He's become quite popular even in non-Catholic circles. He's actually on the cover of Christianity Today this month. Here's a picture of the Christianity Today. Imagine that, Christianity Today with a picture of the pope on the cover. This man has just taken the world by storm because of his great humility. And in his very first interview that he ever granted as pope, the interviewer said he just had this feeling that he needed to go off script. And just out of nowhere, he said, here's my first question. It's not in my notes, but I just feel like I need to ask it. Who is Jorge Mario Bergoglio? Who is he? Who is Horio Mario Bergoglio? And this was the Pope's response. I am a sinner. This is the most accurate definition. It is not a figure of speech or a literary genre. I am a sinner whom the Lord has looked upon. Every time I read that, I'm struck when he says, it is not a figure of speech. This is not a metaphor. This is the truest and most accurate definition of who I am. And that is what Bartimaeus is crying out. Jesus, you're the king, and who am I? I am one who needs a king. I'm one who needs mercy in my life, because apart from you, Jesus, I don't know how to manage my life. You see, the disciples, they represent an obstacle to people that are coming to Jesus, an obstacle to the children that are coming to Jesus. They rebuke them. They put up a wall. They put up a barrier. They're an obstacle. And then Bartimaeus tries to break down the obstacles. And he breaks them down with Jesus' identity and with his own identity. And I would just ask you this. What obstacle can't be overcome by declaring who Jesus is and who we are? I had an obstacle last night as I went to deliver the meditation for the Christmas concert. It was the fourth time I delivered this meditation, and so I thought I would have it down by then. But as the concert went on, all of these thoughts were just rushing into my mind, things that were going on at the church, staff transitions that were frustrating to me, leadership issues that I had yet to resolve, and my mind was just tangled up in knots, and I thought, Lord, I, I need clarity right now. i got to deliver this message to everyone, and my, my mind is racing in all of these different directions. And so I paused, and I declared, Jesus, you're the king. You're in charge. I'm not. I am one upon whom mercy is needed. I need you to give me mercy, Jesus. What obstacle is keeping you from following Jesus. And couldn't that be overcome by declaring who Jesus is and who you are, what our identity is? Jesus is ready to give mercy when we ask for it. The second contrast in the 
Mark chapter 10 is between blind Bartimaeus and the rich young man. We read earlier on in Mark chapter 10 these words. Jesus looked at him, this is the rich young man, and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You see the following theme is there again. But look at the man's response. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Let go of what you're holding on to. And the man said, nope. I'd rather hold on tightly. And he walks away sad, not willing to follow Jesus. Let's contrast that with the story of blind Bartimaeus. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. You see, while the rich young man grabs onto his possessions and decides not to follow Jesus, blind Bartimaeus releases his possessions, lets them go, and puts himself in a position to follow Jesus. I find this all the more powerful of an image because a cloak was a blind beggar's only possession. It was the one thing that he owned. See, the cloak, they would use it to lay in front of them where they were kneeling, They would lay it on the ground, they would kneel there, and when people took pity on the beggar, they would throw their coins onto the cloak. So then at the end of the day, the beggar would gather up the cloak and take his coins away to wherever he was going to hide them, and then they would unravel the cloak again and sleep on the cloak. It was the only possession that a beggar would have. It was the one thing he owned. It was the only tool he had to make sure at the end of the day he didn't have to wander around looking all over the ground for where spare coins may have fallen. The coins had to be collected in a centralized location. But when Jesus cries out to him, he opens his hands. He releases the cloak. You see, I believe it's truly an issue of trust. Jesus doesn't tell the rich young man, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and just exist in poverty forever. He says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. And the rich young man has to decide, am I going to trust that Jesus can provide immeasurably more than anything I could ask or even imagine. That if I open my hands, that Jesus will fill them with things far beyond the wealth that I've accumulated on my own power. Bartimaeus does this. He opens his hands. He allows Jesus to fill them. And this brings us to our second question that will help us follow Jesus. And that's this. What possession is keeping you? from following Jesus. What possession is keeping you from following Jesus? I was just working with a couple and I I asked their permission if I could share this story and they said, absolutely, if our story can be help to anyone, please share it when when you're speaking. And they were having some marriage issues and they were ready to spend thousands of dollars to fly out to Colorado for the Save Your Marriage Conference and and I was speaking with them in my office and, and I said, I really think you all are in a pattern. 
where you try all these what I call sort of half-court save-my-marriage shots. You know, you're just chucking up, you know, long-range three-pointers, and you're kind of hoping that they go in, but you're not really willing to do the hard work of just every day making layups that will invest in your marriage. Let's stop shooting half-court shots, and let's start making layups. And they said, like what? And I said, well, I've identified a couple issues just listening to your conversation, and it really revolves around the way you all use technology to avoid each other. And so I want to just ask you one thing. It's a layup. You can do this with no skill, with no marriage class, without spending thousands of dollars to fly to Colorado. When you come home from work, I want you to turn your phones off and interact with each other. See, the husband was eager to do this. He was already doing this. The wife was using her phone kind of as the Heisman Trophy stiff arm to keep her husband at an arm's distance because of some pain that she had in her life. She wasn't willing to interact. And, and, I, and I, said, I said, stop with the half-court shots. You just need the layup of turning your phone off. Would you be willing to try that? And they did. We met a few weeks later. And the wife said this. She doesn't understand sports a lot. She said, I'm done with shooting eight-pointers. I said, three-pointers, three but good. I'm glad you got the metaphor. And I said, how are things going? And she said, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. We're talking. We're building relationship. We're building intimacy. That one move was like a domino that just hit all of these other things in our lives. And we came up with two new layups and sent them off and they're doing well, and they never even had to fly to Colorado. There was a possession in her life. It was called a cellular telephone. It was keeping her from her husband and ultimately from following Jesus. What possession is keeping you from following Jesus? Is it a car that you're constantly tinkering with? Is it a computer screen? Is it a data plan? Is it a spreadsheet? What is it? Would you be willing to not be like the rich young man and grab on, but to be like Bartimaeus and throw it aside and see how it impacts your life in following Jesus? What possession is keeping you from following Jesus? The third contrast here is the contrast between Bartimaeus and the sons of Zebedee. Let me read to you. This is the last story in Mark 10 before we get to the story of blind Bartimaeus. It's in chapter 10, verses 35 to 37. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Let me just pause and point out a, a key detail here. Do you recognize the question that Jesus asks the two sons of Zebedee? He says, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question he asks Bartimaeus a little later on. When Bartimaeus finally gets in front of Jesus, Jesus says in Mark 10, 51, what do you want me to do for you? And I find it fascinating because the sons of Zebedee have a terrible approach when they come to Jesus. There's a, a thin veneer of selfishness between them and Jesus. Their request is all self-serving. Hey, Jesus, let's just paint you into a corner. We just want to know 
if you will do for us whatever we ask. It's dripping with narcissism, their question of Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Blind Bartimaeus, on the other hand, has basically a perfect approach. He releases the only possession he has, rushes toward Jesus with open arms and a, a clear willingness to do whatever Jesus says. And what's Jesus' response to him? What do you want me to do for you? I think there's this myth that, that we have, that we have to come to Jesus with the perfect plan. Jesus, I'm going to come to you, but I already have this perfect plan where I'm going to get my life right. We have to come to Jesus with our theology 100% fine-tuned, understanding all the intricacies of God and who he is in Scripture. We come to Jesus thinking we've got to get it right before he's going to help us. And that is what I call a false narrative. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. Because the sons of Zebedee come with a terrible approach. Bartimaeus comes with a beautiful approach. And Jesus' response is the same. And that's good news for anyone here this morning that's never come to Jesus. He doesn't need a perfect approach. He just wants you to approach him. And his offer will be the same whether you approach him well or poorly. He will ask you, what do you want me to do for you? The sons of Zebedee answer, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Their answer is, we want power. We want position. We want prestige. Blind Bartimaeus' answer is different. Rabbi, I want to see. Bartimaeus asks for sight. He asks to see Jesus clearly. We studied a book this past fall at my church in Williamsburg. The book is called The Good and beautiful God. And the theme of this book is this idea of false narratives. It's by a guy, I'd never read anything by him before, James Brian Smith. But he was mentored by some of my favorite um, Christian leaders. And I thought, well, if this guy's been mentored by all these people, he has to have something great to say, and he does. He introduced to me this concept of false narratives and the role they play in our spiritual life. One of his mentors was Dallas Willard, and he quotes Dallas in the book. He, he writes this. Dallas Willard writes, The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. Let me read that again. Spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. You see, the sons of Zebedee had a, a false narrative. They had this narrative of if they could only be powerful enough, if they could only have the right position, if they could only have the right place of honor in society, that somehow their lives would matter and they would be fulfilled. Blind Bartimaeus, on the other hand, he has the true narrative that the only thing that really matters is being able to see Jesus clearly. So I've let go of all of my notions about how the world works, Jesus, and I just want to see you so I can have a total interchange of my ideas and images for your ideas and images, Jesus. But in order to do that, I'm going to need to see you clearly. 
Jesus. And so I'd like to ask you this morning, what false narrative is keeping you from following Jesus? What are you believing about life that's keeping you from following Jesus? Is it that your bank statement has to have a certain number at the bottom of it, or you won't be safe financially? Is it that if your child doesn't get into a college with a certain ring to the name, that somehow you'll have been a failure as a parent? Is it that if you don't approach Jesus with exactly the right method, that somehow he's going to reject you? Or maybe that God is angry and he's mad at the way you've lived your life up until now, and so he's never going to accept you anyway, no matter how you approach him. What false narrative is keeping you from following Jesus? And could you pray the prayer of blind Bartimaeus, oh Lord, let me see you clearly. Change out my false narrative for your true narrative. You see, most people read this passage in Mark 10 of the story of blind Bartimaeus, and they see it as yet one more healing story in the Gospels. I want to tell you this morning that this is not a story of a miraculous healing. It's the story of a miraculous calling. How do I know that? Well, this is the only miracle story in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the three synoptic Gospels. It's the only healing story where the person healed has a name. It's personal. There's a personal touch. There's a drive toward relationship here, not just healing. In verse 49, you can see it very clearly. Look at verse 49 with me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. I mentioned that this is a miraculous calling. Why is it miraculous? Because Jesus, the king of all creation, the one about whom we sang earlier in the service, hail, hail, the word made flesh, the word that was with God at the beginning and the word that was God at the beginning, the word made flesh, the king of all creation stops dead in his tracks for a blind beggar. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And the good news is he still stops in his tracks for every blind beggar. And he calls us to stop sitting by the road and start following along the road. His road, his path, his way. This, I believe, is the call of Christmas. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who worked for the Lutheran Church during the Nazi occupation of World War II, said this, he came to us so that we would come to him, he's calling us to move from sitting by the road to following along the road. And I believe it's clear where this path leads. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. I told you Jericho was the last stop on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die, but not just to die, to die and to be resurrected. And so for all of us, I believe that's where our following will lead to, to death, death to what keeps us from overcoming the obstacles that stand between us and him, 
Death to our fears that drive us toward the security of our possessions. Death to our false narratives that lead us to live in ways which poison our souls. But through death we are led to resurrection and new life with him. I told you about how I was sitting there at the Christmas concert with my mind filled with anxiety, all tied up in knots. And I heard Jesus calling me. I heard him calling me first to say, Travis, who am I and who are you? I am the king of the universe. I have all power. I have all power and authority. If you will just cry out, you will just cry out for mercy. See, I had an obstacle in my way to following Jesus. The obstacle was my anxiety. As I prayed for him to wash, have his spirit wash over me, I was standing up to move toward the platform, and I heard Jesus whisper in my ear, leave your notes on the chair. See, I had a possession in my hands that was keeping me from following Jesus. Because I thought if I relied on that, if I relied on those notes, that even if I had a little anxiety in my mind, I could still get through it. That was my possession keeping me from following Jesus because I had a false narrative that was keeping me from following Jesus. That if I just read from a script that I wrote on my power and with my brain and with my words, that somehow that would be okay. That was a false narrative because the true narrative would be when we give ourselves to Jesus, he shows up more than we could ever ask or even imagine. I had an obstacle, I had a possession, and I had a false narrative that was all keeping me from following Jesus. And when I let go of those things and I stood to share the good news with those people that had gathered there, there were a few things that I forgot, some things that I wanted to say that I thought were important. But somehow, some way, the talk had a touch upon it. It was a touch of the son of David. And it was delivered by someone who just stood back and was able to say, I just need mercy tonight. And Jesus poured that mercy out upon that talk. See, this Christmas we have the choice between clarity and obscurity. Choose clarity. Choose not to merely celebrate the birth of Jesus, but choose his calling on your life. His calling to stop sitting by the road and start following along the road. I've asked the band to play a song called Oceans because I believe it's a song about calling. Jesus is calling for us all. Letha will sing, you called me out upon the waters. Hear him calling you now and respond with clarity. Yes, I will stop sitting by the road and start following along the road. Keep my eyes above the waves When oceans rise My soul will rest in your embrace For I am yours And you are mine I am yours And you 
just stand for a minute. I'd like Letha to lead you in singing that because that chorus is just so important. Let's, uh, let's get it in our hearts as we approach Christmas. And I will call upon your name And keep my eyes above the waves When oceans rise My soul will rest in your something now that's an obstacle and, uh, and you just have to give it into his hands. Maybe there's a possession and you just have to say, God, this is yours. Maybe there's a false narrative and you, you just have to say, I just want to follow you. I want to let all these things go. This calling of Christmas is so powerful and so important. This is how we truly experience what God did a long time ago when he came into the world as a baby. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for a time to reflect upon your call upon our lives. Let us hear the call of Christmas. Let us follow you down the road. Let us know that we are yours in every single way and that your love can overwhelm us and take care of every detail of our lives. Father, let us do this together as a church, encouraging one another. Knit our hearts together, Father, in the love of Bethlehem long ago. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.